In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen which were just as they had been told. Lord, we pray for Robin this morning as he gives your word to us. Lord, we pray that we would have ears to hear the things that you want us to hear. And Lord, that you would give Robin your words, that we together would experience you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I mentioned a few weeks ago um, that I grew up, as we say, working class in Scotland in the 1960s. Um, And the neighborhood that I grew up in had gone uh, steadily downhill in the 60s and 70s. Um, And actually, right after Merrill and I were married in 1981, we went to visit my sister, um, who still lived on the same street that I grew up on in a place called Abbey View in Dunfermline in Scotland. Um, Marilyn comes from a really nice middle-class family. And uh, the first time that she saw where I grew up with the boarded-up shops and the ground floors of all the, the flats, the apartment blocks, boarded up because people didn't want to live there because it was too dangerous. Um, it was a bit of a shock for her. 
Things did get better. Uh, we were back there about five years ago, and the, 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 the blocks of flats been torn down. They've built some new houses. The place looks altogether better. I'm happy for that. Um, mind you, it would, be, would have been hard for it to get much worse. And I sometimes wonder if my background, how I grew up, is part of the reason why I like the Gospel of Luke so much. See, all the Gospels, each of the Gospels has its own particular character. Matthew is very concerned that we know that Jesus' earthly ministry is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Mark's Gospel, which is probably the first to be written, is you know, very sparse, very, very fast moving. It's just the facts. John's gospel, on the other hand, which is probably the last to be written, um, seems to assume that you've already read at least one of the other ones. And it's full of extra details like the disciples' characters. Almost everything we know about the disciples' characters we know from the gospel of John. Uh, they're just basically, you know, cardboard cutouts in the in the um, earlier gospels, but in the later gospels, their characters fall out. And and also, John is very much concerned with that we understand Jesus' own self understanding. The the synoptic gospels are full of uh, Jesus' works, whereas John's gospel is full of, full of Jesus' words. Luke's gospel is the only one that was written by a non-Jew, and he's very concerned for the place of the outsider in God's kingdom. More than anyone else, he talks about gentles, Gentiles, uh, about women, and about the poor. And you can see the contrast in the Christmas stories, because we only have two Christmas stories, right? Only Matthew and Luke tell us about Jesus' birth. <clears throat> so Matthew's Christmas story is essentially Joseph's story. Um, there's lots of references to the child and his mother, which is uh, still a classically Middle Eastern way to refer to, um, you know, for men to speak indirectly about family members. And he starts with a genealogy that makes it clear that Jesus is born from the line of King David. It has the Magi, important scholars, visiting from Persia. It has Herod being very afraid of this new king. Matthew is very concerned to let us know how this event is viewed through the eyes of important people, honorable Jewish men, scholars, kings. Luke's version is Mary's story, or maybe you should say Mary's and Elizabeth's stories, because he spends a lot of time with Elizabeth as well. Joseph is mentioned in passing two or three times, but really it's Mary who holds center stage in Luke's narrative. So if Matthew is concerned for us to know how important people respond to Jesus' birth, Luke is more concerned with the unimportant people, a barren woman, an unmarried but pregnant teenager, Smelly shepherds sleeping in a field on the outskirts of town. These are the people who are front and center in Luke's Christmas story. So this Advent season, as we prepare for Christmas, we're going to be looking at how Jesus' coming is good news. This week, we're going to be looking at how it's good news to the poor. 
Next week, Jason will be speaking about how Jesus' coming is good news without borders, and he'll be talking about the Magi. Following week, it's good news. Jesus' is good news to the faithful. And Janira will, will be talking about uh, Simeon and Anna in the temple. And then right before Christmas, I'll be talking about how Jesus is good news for the whole world. So let's get back to Luke's gospel. So Luke tells us that Jesus was born amongst poor people. He does make a reference to powerful people. You can't get much more powerful than Caesar Augustus. But really, Caesar's only there so Luke can give us a date, or more likely like a range of dates, a general period when these things happened. Because there's actually a lot of debate about when Jesus was born. We know he was born before the four, before 4 BC, because that's when Herod died. And I'm sorry, but we don't know when, what time of year he was born either. Um, it probably wasn't in December. Somewhere around uh, the fourth century, Christians started celebrating Jesus Christ coming to earth in December to take advantage of the symbolism of light returning to a dark world as the days get longer after the 21st of December. I'm sorry if that upsets you, but that's just the reality. Um, But here's the thing. Powerful people, kings and emperors, have every minute of their lives recorded and documented. And we know when they were born, because they're born to famous and powerful people. When we worked with Afghan refugees in Pakistan, very few of them knew which year they were born in. Never mind what month or day. Actually, there's lots of Afghan refugees who are now in Canada. You'd be surprised how many of them they have as their birthday, the 1st of January. Or 1st of July. Yeah. So, um, yeah, seriously. For most of history, that's been the norm for poor people. They don't know when they were born. And one of the great wonders of the incarnation, one of the great wonders of God coming to earth and taking on human flesh is that the flesh that he took on wasn't that of a king or an emperor. It was the flesh of a member of a poor family who grew up to be a humble carpenter. So it's not really surprising that we don't know exactly when Jesus was born. He was just one more child born into a poor family that no one took really any notice of. Jesus identified with the poor and the humble, even in the way he was born. To quote Queen, just a poor boy from a poor family. Some of you got that joke. (laughs) And that made it hard for Joseph and Mary too. You can see the contrast here. A powerful man far away, and the, you know, far away in Rome, makes a decision that he wants to um, know how many people there are in his empire. And millions of people scurry around to comply, including Joseph and Mary. It says, so Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he, want, he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. That's about 150 kilometers. 
That's a very long walk for a pregnant woman in her third semester. It'd be a long way even if she rode on a cart or rode on a donkey. I know this because Marilyn and I went on a, um, on a speaking tour um, in eastern Canada in the Maritimes when she was uh, in her third trimester. And um, I've never heard the end of how uncomfortable she was sitting in the car, driving around from church to church, or actually the, the long drive from, from Hamilton, which is in what we like to call central, central Canada, but people from the West call Eastern Canada, um, all the way to the East Coast. So yeah, it's not pleasant traveling long distances in your, um, in your third trimester if you're a pregnant woman. The Bible doesn't tell us how they traveled, um, but it's unlikely that they had a donkey because having a donkey would make them middle class. And we know they were poor because a few verses later, when they're in the temple given the offering, um, it says they gave a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That's a poor woman's offering. The proper offering was a year old lamb and a young pigeon or a dove. Clearly, they couldn't afford that. So they probably couldn't afford a donkey either. And anyway, Joseph's a carpenter, not a farmer. What does he want with the donkey? If he wants to move something, he rents or borrows a donkey from somebody else in the village. There's a great uh, Nasruddin Hoja story about that, which I'll tell you sometime, but not now. Um, who knows who Nasruddin Hoja is? Okay. That's a, that's a Turkish, Central Asian, Afghan, whatever, folk hero, and some wonderful stories. Anyway, I'll tell you a story later. Um, so it's unlikely they had a donkey. They probably, they probably walked. So we tend to romanticize so much around the birth of Jesus. But it wasn't easy in any way. There's nothing romantic about a poor couple walking 150 kilometers with a wife in her third trimester because some guy thousands of kilometers away wants to know how much he should tax them. I don't, I'm, yeah, I'm a little bit sorry about exploding myths about Christmas. But I think it's important that we see what is actually in the text. Because that's what we believe, you know, not, you know, our memories of countless Christmas pageants and, and, and carols. What we believe is what's in Scripture. <coughs> and it didn't, doesn't get any easier when they get to Bethlehem either. It says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Note that it says, while they were there. Not just as they arrived, which is the way it tends to be in pageants. We don't know how long they were in Bethlehem before Mary went into labor. But the way Luke writes, it sounds like they'd been there quite some time. And Luke doesn't make a great deal about the birth either. All he says is, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her son, her, first, her firstborn, a son. And once again, we see how... Jesus identifies with the poor in his birth. It says, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now Luke tells us that Jesus was placed in a manger when he was born. 
That's all he tells us. People have assumed that because the newborn Jesus was placed in a manger, he must have been born in a stable. It doesn't actually say that Jesus was born in a stable, only that he was laid in a manger. And all, However, almost every single English translation reads something like, she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. The first English translation by Wycliffe in the 14th century reads, Mary laid him in a feed trough for there was no place for him in no chamber. And Young's literal translation from the 19th century talks about there being no room in the guest chamber. And a number of more recent versions have gone back to that translation. Both the NIV and the Common English Bible talk about there being no guest room available. It's a good reason for that. The word translated in in most English translations is kataluma. The only other place that word appears in the New Testament is when Luke uses it to describe the upper room in a private house where the Last Supper was held. Not an inn. First century Judean society was at least as hospitable as contemporary Middle Eastern society it would have been unthinkable for a family to arrive in their ancestral town or village and then be told to go and find a room at an inn. That would just be unthinkable. What probably happened was that when Mary and Joseph arrived in Bethlehem, they went to stay with Joseph's relatives. When we were living in, in Kabul, our Chowkidar, that's the guy who answers the gate, the Gvenlik guy, um, he had a death in the family. So dozens and dozens of people came into town for the funeral, for the fatia. And lots of them were staying at his house, which is basically a mud brick house with no electricity apart from that supplied by a car battery. But it was wall-to-wall relatives because people from your family are in town. You put them up. That's what you do. And that was probably a situation that greeted Mary and Joseph when they arrived in Bethlehem. They weren't the only members of the extended family who were in town for the census, and everybody was squeezed into a tiny peasant house. And then when it came for Mary to be delivered, obviously there's going to be no space for that in the guest room with everybody else. So it happens downstairs in the woman's area where the kitchen is. That's not the only place that's downstairs in a peasant house in the first century Judea. There's also the place where the, fam- the animals come in at night. There's two reasons why people bring animals in at night. One is to stop them getting stolen. And the other is in the wintertime, it keeps the house warmer. So if you can imagine, um, the ground floor of first century Judean houses were actually on two, air, two levels. So you had a lower level where the animals were, then you went up a couple steps, and that's where the kitchen was and you know, some living area. And along the edge between them, about you know, a, a floor level where people lived, but at head level for the animals, there'd be a manger, a feeding trough. That's why there was a manger handy. The point of Jesus being put in a feeding trough 
is that he was born in a poor peasant's house, not some great palace, that he comes from a poor family. That family did the best they could to provide for Joseph and Mary a place for them to have their baby. And there was no great announcement. If he were born today, it wouldn't make into the newspapers. It certainly wouldn't make into the tabloids that follow all the celebrities, you know, the Kardashians and all those guys. It wouldn't make into them. Well, there was an announcement. It says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby back wrapped in cloths and living in a, lying in a manger. The Son of God is born. And who does he tell? He tells the garbage pickers. That's not an exaggeration. Religious people despised shepherds. For one thing, they lived outside. It says it right here. There were shepherds living out in the fields. Decent people live in houses, which were in villages and towns. They don't sleep rough. For another thing, because shepherds lived out in the, in the hills with their animals, they couldn't t- take part in the religious life of the community. They couldn't attend synagogue. They couldn't listen to the reading and the teaching of scripture. And then there was a smell. Shepherds smell of sheep. They just do. Which is fine when you're out in the open air. But once you get them in an enclosed space, it's not as pleasant. And these These are the people that God sends his angels to, to announce the birth of his son. Not to the kings, not to the priests, not to the Levites, not to the religious people, not even to nice, ordinary people. No, he announces the birth of his son to people that everybody else looks down on. If it were to happen today in Antalya, the garbage pickers would know about it before we did And what do they do as soon as the angels take themselves back off to heaven? It says, they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and a baby who was lying in the manger. It's the middle of the night. But still the shepherds go charging down the hill into Bethlehem looking for a child in a manger. That's what the angels had said. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. It wasn't the wrapped in cloths bit that was a sign. That's just what you did with babies. You know, you kind of wind up, wind up nice and tight. Um, the sign would, was that he'd be lying in a manger. Because that told the shepherds which end of town to look in. And it wasn't the richy end. Ritzy end. Still, it couldn't have made him very popular. It's like, you know, going from house to house in the poor end of Bethlehem, asking if a baby had been born there. I mean, it's two o'clock in the morning. And some smelly shepherd comes to your door, knocking on the door and saying, have you had a baby born here tonight? 
And no, they couldn't have followed the star because the star was a sign for the wise man who probably didn't arrive for another 18 months. There is nobody important in this story. Joseph and Mary are a poor couple who probably walked 150 kilometers from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The home where Jesus is born, that of some relatives, in, in, uh, relatives of Joseph, but it's a home of poor peasants who share what space and resources they have with the couple. And it's been my experience that poor people are often much more generous and hospitable than rich people. As a pastor of an inner city church, as someone who spent years working with refugees, I've seen that again and again. People who have little are so much more willing to share it than people who have a lot. And the only invited guests at the birth of Jesus are poor shepherds who live on the fringes of town. Jesus came as a savior, as the savior of all mankind. But when he came, he came to the poor. And in his earthly ministry, those who followed him came mainly from the poor, the uneducated, the people the scribes and the Pharisees looked down on, just as they looked down on the shepherds who were there at his birth. And when you think about it, it makes sense. Today, about 10% of the world lives in extreme poverty. That's defined as living on about 11 lira a day. That's a big improvement from 1990 when it was figured to be about, nine, about 50%. At the time of Jesus' birth, it was probably closer to 100% of people lived in grinding poverty. Very few, like Caesar, lived in, you know, in lavish opulence. Everybody else was poor. So when you wander around Perge or other Greco-Roman ruins around here, and you imagine all those, what those wonderful um, buildings around Dicardo, the main drag, uh, the main street, how wonderful they must have looked. Just remember that one third, 30% of all of the residential area in the city was home to 3% of the population. Living in villas with gardens and all the stuff you see in the pictures. The other 97% of the population was squeezed into the remaining two-thirds of the area, living in stacked, you know, five stories high in rickety tenements called insulae. So if Jesus was to be good news to humankind, it followed that that mainly meant being good news to the poor, because most of humankind was poor. And are we any richer now, really? You know, there's two kinds of poverty. There's physical poverty. There's also spiritual poverty. And Jesus' coming is good news to both. In Revelation, he says to the church in Laodicea, you say I am rich, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Comfort can blind us to our need for God. A year ago, I was in Scotland and visited with some friends there. I hadn't seen them in 40 years. Facebook's a wonderful thing. You reconnect with people you haven't been seeing in 40 years. That can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. This was an interesting thing. Um, as far as I can see, 
three or four of them are no longer walking with the Lord. Comfort has dulled their sense of need for God. This August, we were in Canada and we visited my old church, which is the poor section of Hamilton. And I was encouraged, as I always am, by the faith of Edna, who has gone through so much, lost family members to violence and suicide, lived much of her life in poverty, has seen so much pain. But her faith in God is vibrant. And it's just a joy to spend time with her. And she knows that if she hadn't come to faith in Christ, she'd probably be dead by now. So she talks about Jesus all the time, just like the shepherds did. It says, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. The first people who could proclaim the birth of the Lord were people on the margins. Just as the first people who proclaimed his resurrection were women. You know, it doesn't matter what position society labels you with. Jesus is coming as good news. It's good news to everybody. Especially it's good to note news to those on the outside. I started with my own story. I'll end with my own story too. My life could have turned out so very differently. By the time I was 15, I was living alone and going, getting up in the morning and going to school and walking home. Uh, my father was a merchant seaman. He was hardly ever home. Um, my mother was in psychiatric hospital. She died when I was 17. I saw my dad at the funeral. I saw him two more times, purely by accident. I ran into my bus stop at one time, a train station another time. Um, before he he died when I was 21. But I had come to faith when I was 16. And it made all the difference. It made all the difference. Jesus changed my life. I would not be here today. I don't mean just not be here standing in front of you preaching. I, my life would, yeah, if you look up the area I grew up in, Abbey View, uh, on, on um, the internet, one thing that you find, there's not a lot about it, but a lot of famous people came from there. Um, but one guy came from there, um, started the punk rock band, became famous, um, made a movie about gang violence in, in Scotland in which people are hitting each other in the heads with hammers and stuff like that. Um, he and I grew up a couple of blocks from each other. And he writes that, he wrote that movie from his own experience of the violent gang that operated in my neighborhood. I don't know what would have happened. I do know what did happen. Jesus is good news. He was good news in my life. Psalm 68.6 says, he places the lonely in families. And I can testify that that is true. Again and again and again, 
He's taken this lonely, of course, start crying. Yeah, like I said, when I was 15, I was living alone, taking myself off to school in the morning and coming home. And then I met Jesus, and he totally changed my life. Jesus coming is good news to the poor. I know, because it's good news to me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you change lives. Thank you, Lord, that yeah, you're no respecter of persons, that you take whatever we bring to you and you make it into something beautiful. It's not about who we are or what we bring. It's not about our background or our history. It's all about what you can do with our lives once we give them to you. So we thank you for that. I thank you for that. I thank you for what you've done in my life. And Lord Jesus, we praise you that you continue to do that this, to this very day in any life that is given to you. If you're here this morning and you haven't given your life to the Lord, if you haven't handed over your life to Jesus and said you will follow him, today is a great day to do that. If the Lord is speaking to your heart right now about that, just offer him your life. Tell him that you can't make it work and that you're giving it over to him. And then come and talk to one of the pastoral staff, myself or Janita or, 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 or Jason, after the service. And we'll pray with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.